Will BC schools reopen in May? Is that possible? Now, Public Health Officer Bonnie Henry has given out some intriguing comments here that maybe, maybe kids will head back to class. But if they do, and I stress the if, I think it's going to look a lot different from business as usual. You could see kids going to school on alternate days. Maybe some kids will go to school in the morning and others in the afternoon. Certainly school assemblies and sports could be suspended. We're going to break all this down for you here in a minute. We've got live coverage of the news conference coming up at 12 noon. Make sure you keep it locked here for all of that. Also, the plan to reopen bc pubs and restaurants there's a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes here we got a lot the latest on that for you and also on the show today kids sports now i gotta tell you i got two boys in sports my oldest son's got a really good soccer player his team was heading to the championship game before the season got shut down oh he was so disappointed my other son is into rowing he loves it that's been shut down when will kids sports start up again in bc i got a director of the langley minor hockey association on the show today who's written an article on that's going kind of viral online so we got all that and a lots more but first let's talk about back to school here now now have a listen to this this is dr bonnie henry and a recent comment she made about reopening schools in bc i, I absolutely think we'll we'll have some children back in school um this year Maybe and it, but it may be modified. And I don't have the exact blueprint or answers yet. These are all of the things that the Ministry of Education, the superintendents are working out, um, depending on the system, depending on the size of the school. So there may be different strategies in different parts of the province. But um, we will be looking at how do we best support all children in their learning needs. All right, that's Dr. Bonnie Henry. Got a great guest here to talk about this for you. Tracy Sherlock, she's just a fantastic education blogger, writer, and columnist for many years in our province at the Vancouver Sun, the Vancouver Province, my, my colleague there for many years, the Vancouver Courier newspaper. She's a journalism instructor now at Kwantlen Polytechnic University. Tracy, thanks a lot for coming on. Oh, thanks for having me, and thanks for that <laughs> nice introduction. Well, you're, you're welcome. You deserve it. Now, uh, what do you think about schools reopening? Could, is this possible? Do you think schools could reopen this during the school year? Uh, I do think it's possible. Uh, however, I think it will be very um, gradual and very carefully and slowly done. One thing to remember is that some schools are already open right now, um, <clears throat> a few schools in each city have been providing childcare for essential health workers right. pretty well since spring break ended, since a couple days after that. And so that's been going on throughout the province. And I know they're looking to expand that to particularly to vulnerable children just slowly and gradually over the next couple of weeks. And then as far as um, everybody else coming back to school, I think it'll be the same thing. I think it'll be really slow and really gradual. Yeah, and I think it's going to depend, too, on the caseload numbers of COVID-19. So we're seeing some good numbers here in the last few days. And if that trend continues and the new caseloads each day start to go down uh, and the number of hospitalizations continues to remain stable and maybe going down, I think that's going to be a key part of whether the schools open up again. What do you think about the how this could be done, though? I mean, do you, do you foresee maybe kids going to schools on staggered days, alternate days, maybe some kids in the morning, some in the afternoon? I could definitely see 
some iteration of that. It, it's yeah. impossible to know because um, in other jurisdictions that have started to open up, they've made the classes a lot smaller, particularly for younger kids. So if classes are going to be smaller, you either can't all be there all day or you have to take up more spaces. So they have to do something, which could be alternating. It could be coming in the morning, coming in the afternoon. Yeah, it's hard to say. It could really be anything. Yeah, what about kids who are in like critical grades? Like my son's in grade 12, and he's mm-hmm. hoping to go to university in the fall, and here's his school year has been disrupted. Are, are grade 12 kids in a particular category here, and what's going to happen with them, do you think? It's so sad for grade 12 kids, I really think. Uh, I mean, grad year is something you, you look forward to your entire life. And, you know, they just made it to spring break of their grad year, but they're missing out on their ceremonies, their uh, proms, yeah. all of that stuff, to say nothing of their plans for next year, right? They're, they're, <laughs> they're missing this huge milestone in their lives, and it is, it is really sad. And I know that Dr. Henry is... She's mentioned it a few times about grade 12s and how, how sad that is in her various speeches. So I know she's thinking about that. Um, and, okay, so in British Columbia, there's only one exam we, uh, students have to write for graduation. It's a math exam, or they call it an assessment, a numeracy assessment. Um, most students would write that in grade 10. So most mm. grade 12s will have already written that. But I was told uh, by the Vancouver School Board Superintendent Suzanne Hoffman that if there are grade 12 students who still need that to graduate, uh, the school board is looking at how they can provide an opportunity for students to write that. And I know the province has said anybody who was on track to graduate is going to graduate. So, yeah, it's really sad for grade 12s, but I do think they will complete their education as expected. Speaking to education writer Tracy Sherlock, let's talk about uh, what's going on in schools now with the, with the virtual learning, the online learning that's going on. And this morning on the Simi Sarah Show, Simi interviewed Terry Mooring, who is the president of the BC Teachers Federation. And here's what she had to say about the virtual learning going on in BC. It is working. I mean, it is not ideal. And no one anticipated we would have to do this. And no one's ever done this before. And so it's not ideal. But certainly, uh, teachers are, you know, deciding on priorities in terms of learning, uh, trying to incorporate real-world learning into what they're doing right now. So, um, you know, taking some examples from, you know, what students have in their homes, what they can do easily. Okay, it's Terry Mooring this morning. What do you think about the online learning that's going on right now? I think it was kind of a slow ramp-up of this, but do you think it's working well, Tracy? I think it's hard to say it's working well. In in the scheme of things, this is still really brand new. And like uh, Terry said, no one's ever done this before. It, they're just starting. It's in baby infancy stage at yeah. this point. It's really hard to evaluate whether it's good or not, but it is something. There is something there, and, and teachers are doing their best. I, I believe that. Yeah, and I think we're going to continue to have a lot of online stuff going on, especially if kids are coming back in sort of stages or if there are staggered dates or alternate dates for school. Here's uh, Terry Mooring again, the, the teachers' union president here, talking about uh, schools reopening. Well, the planning, of course, as anyone would expect, is underway. Um, but in the very early stages, and, you know, this isn't going to happen next week. Um, there's going to be plenty of time given for people to make those adjustments. And um, and it's going to be another big um, feat to, to move schools back. All right. Not going to happen next week, she says, but I wonder if it could happen in May. Your thoughts? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, like I said earlier, I, th- I think it'll be a very gradual thing. I, I do yeah. think we will see more students in British Columbia back at school in some form yeah. in May and in June. But I think even September is going to be hard to mm-hmm. see everybody back at school as normal. I, I don't really expect that. All right, welcome back to the show, Mike Smith, as we continue talking about the BC school system. When will schools reopen? What will schools look like when kids do head back to class? My guest is education reporter Tracy Sherlock, and your call's on the open line, 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898, toll-free on your cell. Let's go to James on the line in Cloverdale. Hi, James. Hi there. I just want to say I think that the teachers are doing a fantastic job with the with the, the predicament that they're in right now the one thing that i would have liked to have seen was the school board or the teachers themselves uh uh, sending out what the rest of the curriculum would have been for the year for my son so that i could keep him up to speed instead of just doing the online stuff that they have going on right now okay james thank you for the call well tracy as you said i mean this is kind of new territory for everybody nobody thought that we'd have to do this and i think a lot of stuff has been kind of made up as we go along really um the province seems to have left a lot of the planning and delivery of online education to the local school boards and i think it comes down almost to a teacher by teacher basis like maybe how comfortable your teacher is on uh, doing online with kids but what is what is your uh, perception of how this is rolled out I would say for sure it depends on how comfortable the teacher is with online because for some of them it's going to be very easy to do a Zoom with their class, uh, you know, an online virtual class. For others, that's going to be something they've never even considered and they may not even have a computer at home, so they have to start from the very bottom with getting set up uh, with that. Um, I do think as to the caller's question about curriculum, it's it's a good question and of course you'd be concerned if your child was going to miss I don't know, long division or whatever it is. Um, But I also think everybody's going through this at the same time. So teachers are going to be, of course, understanding of that next year when it comes along. You know, they're going to have to catch everybody up. Let's go to Raj in Kamloops. Hi, Raj. Oh, hi there. Hi. Go ahead. Michael. Yep. Yeah. Go ahead, Raj. Um, Yeah, you know, uh, just for... uh, you know, I know this whole thing is new. Uh, everyone's having a hard time as it is. Uh, things are constantly changing. Um, uh, but uh, what my point, what I wanted to bring up was uh, with kids that have uh, underlying, um, with kids that have parents that have underlying health issues, um, you know, like ourselves here, um, we will not be letting our kids go back to school until things are, you know, uh, a little bit more... You know, there's a little bit more concrete evidence, and um, in making sure that you know we don't get um, and we don't get sick in the future. Roger, thank uh, you. Thank you for the call, man. I, I appreciate you. you. I appreciate you sharing that. And I, I wonder, Tracy, if there's. I'm sure there's other parents out there who are nervous about something like that. And and once classes do get up and going again, even if they are on sort of alternate days or maybe just for a couple hours in the morning, I, I wonder if maybe some parents might think it's going to be too soon. Absolutely agree. One, one of the things that Quebec um, said yesterday, because Quebec released their plan for reopening schools, and right. they're going to reopen, I believe it's for the younger grades on May 11th, but they said school is optional. 
So, and I think that is to accommodate those people who do have health concerns or who aren't ready to send their child to school knowing that this pandemic is happening. So that's another reason why um, everyone's going to be in the same boat with catching up. You know, if some kids can't go to school, we still have to keep it um, equal for them. They still have the same rights. I think it's a great point. Natalie on the line in Delta. Hi, Natalie. Hi. um, So I feel that um, the kids right now, it took a while for them to set up at home, doing whatever their homework and all the curriculum that they're following. I think May and June is not going to do anything. What the children are going to end up doing is going to school and and it's not going to be organized. It's just going to be walking the halls. I'd rather they sit home, study, and get the May and June over with. And September, the teachers have enough time to plan and see how everything went in the last yeah. few months that they were in. Yeah. Natalie, thank you for the call. No, I've heard, I've heard similar from people saying, like, look, maybe we should just write this year off and try to start fresh in the fall. Let's try and uh, squeeze in some more calls here before in the time we got Greg on the open line. Hi, Greg. Morning, Mike. Uh, My wife is a teacher in uh, the Tri-City School District, and um, uh, the curriculum for most parents, if they're looking for the curriculum, it is available through either your school's website or through the district's website. That being said, also teachers are putting out constant information about uh, what they're looking for, or, I mean, like the majority of... of, material that they're trying to get kids to do a lot of these kids don't have um computers or they're at the whims of their parents about when they can be online and when they can't so but sending kids back to school at this point in time would be a serious misstep because like my wife is pregnant so it wouldn't it would be a bad judgment call for a pregnant teacher to go back into what could be considered a giant petri dish of disease. Wow, Jerry, thank thank you for the call. I appreciate that. Uh, listen, like I said, there there are going to be people here who are not thrilled with the idea, and I think that's why this makes it such a challenging issue for the government. We just got about a minute left here. Let's squeeze another one in. Jerry on the line in Delta. Hey, Jerry. Yeah, hi there. I just wanted to say uh, I'm a grandfather that takes my... Uh, two granddaughters to school and uh, my daughter is doing the home studies but uh, she was saying that she would have a difficult time take, letting them go back to school because socially uh, they're only in kindergarten in grade two and uh, to be split up from their friends would be uh, a social problem for her and so I, I think that uh, they need to think about how they're going to do this uh, return. No, no kidding. Jerry, thank you for the call. And try socially distancing a, a bunch of six-year-olds. <laughs> that could be like herding cats for sure. Uh, Tracy, thanks for your time today. Where can people find your blog? Uh, probably just easiest to follow me on, on Twitter. It's just at Tracy Sherlock. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Mike. All right, welcome back to the show. When you think about the businesses that have suffered the most through the pandemic, the restaurant sector has taken a lot of the damage. Restaurants shut down, thousands of people out of work. Of course, a lot of restaurants have continued with takeout and delivery to try and stay afloat. But everybody waiting and hoping for the signal that pubs and restaurants in British Columbia can maybe, maybe start to reopen again as we flatten the curve of this pandemic. Let's check in with Ian Tostenson now, president of the BC Restaurant Association. Ian, thanks a lot for coming on. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me on. 
Let's talk first of all about just how much damage that this sector has taken. Do you have any recent numbers on how many restaurants have shut down, job losses, anything like that? Yeah, so uh, broad numbers, 190,000 employees, probably 180,000 are unemployed right now. The other 10,000 would be working doing takeout and delivery, which is you know minor part of the business. Um, 15,000 restaurants, um, you know, how many of those 15,000 are open minimally? I don't know, maybe 20 or 30%. Um, we know through research that at least 10% of the industry is not coming back. Um, it's just they don't, they don't have the staying power, the energy or the, you know, or, or whatever to get through this. And so I think the number is going to be higher. Yeah. But I also believe that we're going to come back stronger and more organized and, and it's going to be a whole, but we're going to make a whole bunch of good things come with this. Um, you know, it's unfortunate and it's a major third part or the l- largest third uh, private industry sector for employment in the province. Um, but we're, we're, we'll bring it back and we'll bring it back. And somehow in the future here will be somewhat normal, <laughs> whatever that means. Yeah. yeah, it's tragic to think and heartbreaking to think about people who've lost their businesses, you know, who have dreamed about something like this. I know for a lot of people who get into this business, it's kind of a labor of love. It's, it's a passion that people, and it's a dream for a lot of people, but it's so tough to make a restaurant succeed because of the narrow profit margins. And man, when you start disrupting that cash flow, it doesn't take long for a lot of restaurants to to go out of business, like you said. And if the attrition rate is 10%, if we, if we lose only 10% of the restaurants, I think I think I should probably be doing pretty good, wouldn't we? Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's going to be worse than that. Yeah. And you're right. Um, cash is a big issue. It's just these, the, the model is to, for continuous cash coming through. When you stop it, like, overnight, um, there's no staying power. These are, rest- right. a lot of restaurants already have debt. They don't want any more debt, and um, so on and so forth. So, yeah, it's it's unlike unlike anything. All of this is like any of us has ever seen before. And the challenge now is, what does the future look like? Right. And um, we had two issues to deal with here. As so, we took, I think we've taken extreme leadership on this one because Dr. Henry sort of gave us a challenge a week ago. And we put together a group of um, fifty restaurants throughout the province, big, small, um, QSR, full service, and we've had. We have another meeting here, another 20 minutes, to sign off on a plan uh, of best and the best research that we've been able to come up with about how to do this um, from everywhere in the world. And we've got a document that we'll be sending to the government this week. And it deals squarely with two issues, public safety and public confidence. And if we can't nail those, we can nail public safety, you know, but we're going to have to be more visible about that. But it's a public confidence, and what you're going to see, Mike, is um, a very strict protocol that we're going to force, which will be um, Mike's restaurant has to go online, and in order for Mike to open, he has to go through an awareness training about what his expectations are, or what, what, what's expected of him. Then you're going to receive, quote, a restaurant in a box, and in that box is going to contain all your protocols and all the things that you have to do, and all your sign-off documents and all the things you do with your staff and probably thermometer for measuring your staff, all those things are so important. And then you will be able to put a sticker in your window that says Mike's restaurant has gone through COVID uh, training and it's ready to go. And in, if we don't have that sign in every restaurant, then we're saying you can't open because it's going to take just one or two restaurants that don't do this the right way or skip the program 
and then we're right back to where we are. It's very precarious, and it's very critical we do this right. And I actually got a call from the Premier to thank us for doing this, which I just thought was amazing on his part to encourage us. And I told the Premier this. I said, Mr. Premier, I said, we are going to develop this plan. is going to be world-class that you can pass on anywhere in the world because we've got some of the best restaurant minds in the entire world rested in British Columbia. And we'll build the plan for BC, and we can share it across the provinces. So we're really excited about this, Mike. But um, we're not saying open in May. And that's the other thing, too, is I'm going to say, let's get at this. We, it could be a while to do this. We could be into the end of June or July, but we're not going to go early. Despite the pain, it has to be done right. Wow, this is really uh, exciting details that you're laying out for the listeners there on on this plan. That's really exciting. Talk a little bit more detail, Ian, about what what might be in this document that you're presenting to government this week. Like when you talk about the public safety and the public confidence. So when you say public confidence, you mean that the public is confident they go into this restaurant to eat, they're going to be safe, they're not going to get sick. That's right. So you're, you know, you'll probably, well, you won't probably, I mean, staff will be, uh, will have to sell, sign a health declaration and be temperature checked every time they come in. Um, and they will be uh, made sure that if they're feeling sick, they go home and they're taken care of. So there's none of this. I have to work because I need the money. Um, you're going to see um, separation in a restaurant where you won't be standing to wait to go in. You'll be probably, t- you know, you'll, you'll probably text and get a text and then come in when you're ready. You'll see separation. Uh, so with capacity is a big issue. And so we're looking at what does that mean? And we're saying that most restaurants initially uh, probably can't go more than 50% capacity. But the real test is the, the distance between tables and chairs right. of a minimum of three feet. You're going to see uh, people that are handing, doing washing the dishes and handling the dirty dishes in masks and gloves. You're going to see protocols all throughout the restaurants for guests and and servers on hand washing and sanitation stations. And you're going to see controls at the the washrooms so that we don't get crowding in washrooms. Probably have a concierge at the washroom initially. We see, Mike, sort of three stages. One is to come out of the gates with whoa, and then it'll, as, as time goes on here, stage two and stage three, and stage three will be somewhat, I guess, back to normal, what we, we thought it is. Um, you'll see, you'll be sitting at the bar. Uh, you could sit at the bar, but you're going to be six feet away from the person next to you. So I guess the private conversations that people had at bars are kind of gone yeah. for a while. Um, and you're going to see training. You're going to see training for the staff, training for the, um, the, the owners of the restaurants, and so the trick here is to have consistency so that you can say, you know, I go to a restaurant in BC and this is the four things that they're doing here and they're focused on this. And um, so it's going to be, it's going to be a really major effort to do this, but I know we'll get some help from the government. Uh, the premier is more than interested in getting the economy going. And, um, but you know, if it costs a million dollars to do this, um, that's nothing compared to what the industry is not contributing on a daily basis for taxes and alcohol and all that employment. So it's a minor amount of money to invest into, you know, public safety and also public confidence. Speaking to Ian Tostenson about the plan to open BC restaurants, what about um, table service in the restaurants? How would that work? Like, would the waiter still come to your table or would the food be set somewhere away from your table? You go pick it up. How do you achieve that? Well, you know, we, we, we're sort of dealing with that today, and I don't know what the answer is. I actually wonder myself. It's one of the things that we'll be discussing today is, 
you know, what is the perception of a server coming up and, and putting the food down? So, yeah. um, cause you want to make sure that that's not, that there's ways of doing that. Um, but we haven't quite figured that out yet. And there's also ways of having, uh, the, the, uh, the guests pick up the food, but then you don't want a whole bunch of people necessarily circulating around. So we've we got to deal with those, with those protocols. We're not quite there in that one, but it is an issue because we can do all the things that I just said and then suddenly go, well, that's great. But you know, what about the server here? But the one thing about the server that you will be is that the server will be highly sanitized, if you can use that word. Um, so protocols and watching, and they're going to be signing in like they, when they wash their hands, we're going to track all this. And so when your server comes to table, you can be guaranteed they don't have a temperature, they're not sick, and they've practiced all the sanitation and washing their hands. And I'm sure they're going to probably keep their distance from you when they deliver the food. Um, you're not going to see a lot of condiments on the table where things can just sort of hang around. It's going to be very, very minimal, but you know, Mike, uh, it's going to be fun though. I mean, we have to have some fun with this, right? And we can go back in five years and say, do you remember the time when we went to a restaurant, we actually had to do this. Um, we, we, we collectively can get through this and, and, um, have a little bit of levity in a very difficult circumstance. All right, welcome back, Mike Smith. As we continue talking about the plan to reopen BC restaurants, my guest is Ian Tostenson, head of the Restaurant Association, and we're talking about a a very detailed plan being presented to the BC government here this week in order to get restaurants eventually reopened in the province, and it would include increased training for staff, a training certificate or a sticker to be displayed in the BC restaurant so that uh, customers know uh, that they're going to be safe if they go in the restaurant, tables spread out to achieve social distancing, mandatory health checks for staff, including temperature checks of uh, people working in the restaurant. So, uh, Ian, that's a very uh, interesting plan that you uh, you guys are putting together there. What is the process here now? You mentioned that this goes in front of the government, that you then wait for the uh, approval from the government to implement this, or how do you expect that to unfold? Yeah, well, we will get it to uh, the Minister Dix and the Chief Medical Officer and uh, probably to a few other ministries for a, a quick, well, not a quick, but for a review to see what, yeah. what it is that we uh, perhaps missed or we should add. Um, we want to make sure that we don't sort of box ourselves into a corner here and create a whole bunch of regulation that uh, is unnecessary, but rather distinguish between regulation and best practices. I think the, the, uh, the best practices under the circumstances will serve us very well. And it's going to serve us for a long time. I think we will forever see restaurants being uh, prepared in a different way for the next crisis that we have. Cause we were, as every industry was totally unprepared. So um, we're looking forward to it. I mean, I, the one thing I, I find about Dr. Henry, she's so flexible. She's got common sense and her answer generally is yes. How do we make this work versus no. I think the economy is so important around uh, hospitality that um, the government's really keen about getting something started here. Okay, that's fascinating. 604-280-9898 is the number to call. Star 9898, toll free in your cell. Let's go to Alex on the open line in Surrey. Hi, Alex. Oh, hey, Mike. Yeah, I'm looking forward to when the restaurants gently open up and all that. For one, I'm in the uh, fire protection industry. So that's a lot of our business or fire protection. But for just as a consumer, like I, there's a place in Abbotsford that I live that um, they do takeout right now. I'm looking forward to when they open up more so they're going to have more choices on the menu because right now it's pizza, anything from their wood fire oven, which is, don't get me wrong, is unreal. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, you and me both. I mean, I'm looking forward to going back to some of my favorite places, too. I mean, I want to go back to, to my pub. You know, I want to go and have a, a pint again. Uh, this is the things that, that we, I guess, took for granted in the past. And then we realize now, once it's gone, how much, how much you miss these things in your life. So I, I really hope that a plan like this can work. And he used the word a gentle reopening there, Ian. And you mentioned that it was interesting to hear you say that you don't expect this to happen quickly. Like you don't expect this to, you guys don't expect to be open in May. Like, you know, we're talking no. about maybe schools could maybe start to quietly reopen or, or reopen a bit in May, but you don't think restaurants can reopen in May. No, you know, handling food and being in a closed environment, all those different things. I mean, um, we our, our standard uh, has to be so high. Um, yeah. We've got to deal with, you know, we have the whole patio opportunity. So we don't want to miss that, but, I don't want to give the impression that the industry is so desperate to open. I mean, despite the fact we're desperate, believe me, it is. It's terrible. But at the same time, uh, every one of these operators, and the, the 50 of them on this call, uh, the, this is the third call coming up, as I mentioned, uh, they've all said, we can take your time, get it right. And if it takes yeah. time and it takes more pain, we're going to get it right. And, and, I, and I really appreciate that. I, I have never heard someone say, can we get at this thing so I can make some cash? They would go broke before they'd put the public safety at risk. It's really let's go, cool. Let's go to Brad, uh, back to the phone lines. Brad and Langley, hi. Hi, Mike. Hi, Ian. Um, I'm in the hi. industry. We're operating uh, takeout only. My concerns of what I hear talking is, one thing we have to get in place is supplies for restaurants to be able to get their hands on. If we're talking about uh, sanitizer at doorways, um, taking temperature of staff, we need to get able to get infrared thermometers and stuff like that. Our biggest trouble is getting supplies, so I hope that stuff's put in place. The other is one is Brad gloves. Yes, it is. Brad, oh I, boy, boy. Sea Lovers Fish and Chips, great place. Oh yeah, we all we all know Sea Lovers Fish and Chips. Absolutely, for, for yeah. sure. What what do you think about his point, Ian? Uh, well, you know, interesting. This morning, I talked to the Ministry of Small Business. Their uh, Assistant Deputy Minister of International Supply is working on that, and one of the principles we said is, uh, yeah, we, we need these materials. So GFS and Cisco are the big food suppliers. So we're we've tasked them with sourcing all the things that we need. But the first principle is, and again, it came out of this working group, is not at the expense of the healthcare industry. So if we can't get wow. this uh, after the healthcare um, situ- uh, healthcare industry, then we're going to have to wait. But like what, what about um, ma- what about masks? Do you envision like waiters or waitresses wearing a, a mask at work? Uh, we envision masks being worn by people handling uh, dishes and dirty dishes and gloves. There's some controversy with gloves that they do. You're better off to wash your hands and have bare hands versus uh, gloves because they do carry contaminants uh, easier than uh, washed hands or washed hands don't, obviously. Uh, I don't think you're going to see masks. Um, we don't know that. We're going to deal with that this afternoon or this morning, uh, masks okay. for servers. But you know what? If we have to, we have to. Um, but um, okay. if that's what's necessary, we will do that. Ian, that's a really interesting glimpse into what's going on behind the scenes. I appreciate you sharing that with us today, and thank you for coming on. Mike, thank you so much, and I'll keep you posted where we uh, where we get to here. All right, welcome back. Talking a lot about getting BC back on its feet and trying to get some services and businesses open again. We've talked about opening schools today on the show. We've talked about opening restaurants again in British Columbia. Very detailed plan there being developed by the BC restaurant industry 
to get restaurants open in British Columbia again. So that was interesting uh, to learn that today on the show, that plan being presented to the B.C. government this week. Now, we all know that kids' sports are largely shut down. This has affected uh, my own home. I got two boys in sports and soccer, rowing. They love it. They're into it, and uh, they're disappointed that their sports have been shut down. Uh, let's talk about some of the other sports in British Columbia and kids sports especially. And can they begin to think and dream about maybe reopening at some point? Now, remember what Dr. Bonnie Henry has said, the provincial health officer. Her approach on this thing has been pretty consistent, that if you want to get your industry or your activity up and running again, prove it to me. Show me that you can do it safely. This is why we're seeing the restaurant business come out here now with this very detailed plan for government. Here's how we're going to do this. Here's how we're going to keep people safe. On the issue of kids sports, she has said the same thing. She said, I need people who are involved in minor sports to start thinking about it, how we can do this in the new normal. We need to find new ways to do this. Now, think about which sports could maybe open first. Now, we already see some golf courses opening up in British Columbia this week. I think that's great. What about other sports for kids? Which could be done safely? Which could be opened up again? Let's talk about that now with my guest, Jordan Bateman. He is a director of the Langley Minor Hockey Association. He's also a very well-known public policy analyst and commentator in B.C., former Langley Township Councilor. Jordan, thanks a lot for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me, Mike. Uh, you wrote a really interesting article about minor hockey in, in the era of this pandemic for the Orca website, which I know is getting a lot of attention online. How long have you been involved in minor hockey? Well, uh, I have a 10-year-old son, so he's been playing since he was five. And uh, we, we had two uh, older girls before that who played softball and did swimming and diving. Never thought we'd be hockey parents, but uh, the kid loves it. So, you know, as we as we started to look at, um, you know, as I started to think about reopening, and I'm involved in the construction industry now with uh, ICBA, you know, it's an essential service, but I've seen the changes that construction work sites have had to make. I started to brainstorm, you know, what would actually have to happen to, you know, convince uh, Dr. Henry that hockey for kids could be safe. And, Mike, it's a lot. A lot would have to change. Yeah, one of the things that she has said that it, it's less risky when you're outside. So I wonder if maybe some outdoor sports could maybe start up quicker. Maybe kids, yeah. Little League Baseball. I asked Adrian Dix about Little League Baseball the other day, and he was saying maybe we can figure that out. Maybe it's tougher for an indoor sport like minor hockey. But talk to me, J Jordan, about you know some of the ideas you've come up with. But maybe hockey could be played safely. Yeah, I should know you're on the right track, Mike. Uh, Softball BC is busy putting together a plan for Dr. Henry to look at. And I think a lot of whether hockey can come back will depend on how softball, baseball, uh, summer soccer, if they can come up with some uh, models and you know prove that there aren't outbreaks after the fact, um, that will help minor hockey's cause. But with minor hockey, there's two pieces. There's what arenas will have to do, and then there's what associations and teams will have to do. And with arenas, you know, you can kind of think about it as like any workspace, right? They're going to have to limit the number of people within their building. Right now, that limit seems to be 50. Um, for ice arenas that have multiple sheets of ice, you're going to have to have different entrances set up for those different sheets so you don't get people kind of cross, crossing paths in the foyer. You'd have to do a lot more disinfection. <laughs> Anyone who's been in a hockey arena knows they're not always the cleanest place. Um, 
So, you know, a lot of disinfection has to go on there. Uh, You're going to have to have longer periods in between ice times to allow people to leave uh, and to come in without crossing paths. So that's the challenge for the arenas, although that's mainly physical challenge. You'll you'll want to have physical distancing for spectators and all of that stuff. It's the teams and the association who really have to rethink. And, you know, essentially you're stripping out all the social aspects of the sport. Um, you know, you're not going to have out-of-town travel tournaments, obviously. You're not going to be able to have team dinners or tailgates or uh, maybe even, you know, dry land training beforehand. Often hockey players will arrive an hour before the game. They'll, you know, kind of do some uh, running around the arena. They'll have some fun, get get worked up, warmed up, uh, then get changed in the dressing room. I think all of that will have to change. Kids will need to come fully dressed. Um, mm. You know, if you if you stick with five-on-five hockey games, yeah. just the number of kids per team, plus the number of coaches, plus the number of health officials have to be there, plus the uh, referees, you actually get to your 50-person cap before you've even allowed a single parent or grandparent in to watch the game. Right. So, you know, these are really difficult challenges that hockey associations are going to have to to deal with yeah, and you know what that is a real steep mountain to climb there that you, you've just described to try and achieve that kind of social distancing and, and keep kids safe but i mean so many people out there are involved in these sports and it's just heartbreaking you know these kids are sitting around and they miss the sports they miss their friends if we can try and figure out a way to maybe get some of these sports operating safely again i think it's something we should look at and certainly the government has indicated they're willing to look at it when you think about a sport like hockey though body contact sport right does that increase the risk yeah well probably and you know most kids wear wire cages one of the things you could do is switch kids to glass shield although that's more more cost to uh to parents but you know that would certainly do a little bit better um the older you get the harder it becomes you know for the bc hockey league for example um, you know, you have all these kids who are competing basically to get college scholarships uh, in the States, uh, some to get drafted to the NHL. There's a, a wonderful player out of trail who is destined to be a first-round uh, NHL draft pick. But if you don't have games, if the league can't put spectators in seats, they can't afford to run. And, you know, that's a big problem. You know, like for my 10-year-old, you know, he's not going to the NHL. He's a great kid. But, you know, like, the, the odds of getting the NHL for little kids is slim to none. Um, it, it's not a big deal if you know he spends a year playing three on three or doing skill development, but for that 16, 17, 18 year old who has a shot at a college scholarship, like I just feel terrible for those families because I'm not sure how you can do this safely. Yeah, yeah. Of course, you know most kids are not going to go on to be pros. I mean, most most no. for most people, minor hockey is a family or a, a family event that we, the parents love to be there. Uh, it's keeping your kids healthy and 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 socially connected and. It's if there's a way to try and keep these sports going, um, I think we should start talking about it and looking at it. But man, oh man, when you start talking about hockey and all the equipment involved and all the different challenges that you've you've just described, that is a really tough tough thing to achieve. And I wonder if if you were able to play hockey again, would it even look like? hockey again? Like you know, like you mentioned, yeah. the social element of, of the game, whether it's barbecues or team banquets or the parents hanging out together i mean would all that go away at least in the short term oh i think it would it would have to i mean you just couldn't do it on that scale what non-sports parents maybe don't know or understand is that a huge part of what you're 
you're doing is you're paying for the kid to play the sport, but you're also playing for those social connections, learning teamwork. And frankly, you're also paying for a little bit of entertainment for your family. Like, you know, your kid will play 40 games in a year and that's, you know, 40 nights where grandma and grandpa come out and it's exciting and it's fun. And you have that kind of entertainment value. All of that goes away if, you know, you can't even, you know, if no one beyond the officials and, and the, um, and the coaches can get into an arena. So, these are really interesting questions. Now, you know, Dr. Henry may look at this and say, well, you know, square footage wise, it doesn't make sense to, you know, look at every public space in the same way. If you've got, you know, 10,000 square feet versus a thousand square feet, obviously the numbers should be different. So, you know, there might be some hope there, but, you know, we shouldn't be counting on it. And um, yeah, it's the response to the piece has been pretty staggering, divided between. What's, what's the, the reaction? What's the reaction oh. been like? Well, there's a small group of people who are like, uh, Jordan, shut up, which I'm used to hearing uh, from time to time, Mike. And, you know, Jordan, shut up. You're, a, you know, you're overreacting. You know, I'm going to put my kid out on the ice, COVID or no COVID. I'll sign whatever waiver. Well, waivers aren't going to protect associations. Um, so, you know, they're kind of like the, the denial people. Then you have the over, like, like super, like, forget it. Hockey's dead until there's a vaccine. I wouldn't sign my kid up uh, until I know for sure that they're all protected. So you have that kind of extreme. But then you have this kind of middle group like me who are like, geez, you know, you start pulling the thread of the sweater and then unravels very quickly as to how you could actually do this. Yeah. Um, But, you know, let's at least try and let's try to figure out ways to keep kids on the ice this fall. Right. All right. Welcome back, Mike Smith. As we continue talking about kids' sports with my guest, Jordan Bateman, would you let your kid go back on the ice or back on the field if kids' sports started up again? Call me right now, 604 280 9898, star 9898 on your cell. Let's go right to your phone call. Shauna calling in from Kelowna. Hi, Shauna. Hello. Hi. Go ahead. Um, I, uh, I, I really am enjoying your conversation. Um, I have a 15-year-old son who actually plays high school football um, here for the Kelowna Secondary School Owls. And we're all sort of um, in a holding pattern right now, obviously, because we don't really know what's going to happen in the fall. They're scheduled to start training in July. But, Jordan, you mentioned um, the older kids, uh, you know, 15, 16, 17, that are you know, pursuing college scholarships for hockey. Well, um, the same situation exists for football. And, you know, my son is heading into grade 11. Um, there's kids on his team that are in grade 12 on the varsity football team. Um, and this is a really important, uh, it's a really important year for them. And, you know, um, many of them have opportunities to play football uh, in Canada and some uh, in the U.S. And so, you know, it's, it, but football is a contest sport and right. uh, same kind of concerns exist in that regard, but it's played outdoors. I think that, you know, with some creativity, there could be some um, concessions made. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm just curious about your perspective on, on football. Shana, thanks for calling in. Jordan, your thoughts. Yeah, football is a tough one, too, because you're right. You know, there's so much, you think of an offensive line, defensive line. I mean, they're colliding with each other 75 times a game. You know, the tackling. The thing that we got to remember is it's all about these droplets, right? The sweat, the spit, you know, water bottles, sweat towels, uh, the equipment. And there's just, you know, it's going to be so difficult to do it. Now, 
you know, fortunately to our south, we have a uh, country who, you know, where football is a religion. And if there's one country on earth that will figure out a way to do football, it's the United States. And we can see what they do. Uh, we can see how their results are and if there are outbreaks or, or whatnot based on, on what goes on. So, you know, that might be the only glimmer of hope for football is that the Americans are so uh, socially and financially invested in it that, you know, they're going to plot a, a path forward. Shauna, thanks for calling in. Lots of calls here. Steve in Vancouver. Hi, Steve. Hi, guys. Uh, very timely topic as uh, my, my 15-year-old daughter uh, plays hockey in Vancouver. Uh, we just got an email from the association yesterday reminding everybody that uh, returning players, uh, the deadline is the end of the month to reserve a spot. Um, of course, oh. at the beginning of the next month, we open it up to new registration. Uh, Vancouver, uh, well, female hockey is growing like rapidly, as I'm sure you're both mm. aware. It's a very fast-moving and fast-growing sport. Um, the social interaction before the game and after is probably 85% of the fun. Uh, yeah. Team alone in a dressing room, right? Having fun. Um, uh, boys, girls, doesn't matter who you are. Uh, what, what about hockey associations, um, instead of having a competitive situation, work on skills-based um, practices within its own association. Limit the number of kids that are on the ice at any given time. Um, uh, less contact. Maybe it's a practice with sort of 10 kids on the ice and a, and a, and a goalie, and they, just, they work on still, skills for the year. Um, it's a pretty big risk to cough up $1,000 right now for the next um, season, potential next season, when, you know, nobody in my household has been working in the last little while. So I'll hang up and uh, let you hear what you think. Thanks. Steve, thanks for a good call. Jordan? Yeah, I know a number of associations are trying to stagger their payments. You know, maybe it's $100 down payment to save your spot and then 150 a month after to try to help families. I like that. The point about social interaction is so true. Like, yeah. my kids' favorite memories are in the dressing room or goofing around with the boys after. And yeah. if you take away, if you think of sweat and the fact that you can't take off jerseys and equipment in such close proximity to each other without some of those droplets spreading around, that all has to disappear. Um, I agree. I, I think a lot of associations are looking at, okay, if we can't travel, you know, is there a point to rep teams? You know, if rep teams are only playing within you know, do we instead do some sort of internal year? But that's great for big associations like Langley, but terrible for uh, smaller associations spread across the province where, you know, you may only have one team of players. So okay. it's, there's, no, there's no easy answer. So that, that's what really sucks about this. Squeeze another one in here. Greg in Surrey. Hi, Greg. Yeah, I was just uh, going to contribute to the last caller uh, sort of in the same vein. What about altered sports uh, rules or, or engagement of play? You could leverage things like Special Olympics where uh, things are maybe a little slower or maybe uh, don't have the contact going on. And um, is, that a, is that maybe a viable option and maybe, maybe for the future? Okay, we've got about 30 seconds left here, Jordan. What about maybe yeah. no, no body checking? Yeah, well, definitely. They already limit body checking for kids under the age of 15. Uh, there is none, yeah. so you could expand that up. Um, but look, there's always going to be friction and bumping into each other. I mean, the kids playing yeah. hockey, uh, just watch the women's, uh, Olympics. Uh, you tell me they may not have body checking, but tell me that's not a physical game. 